All right, today, today is a brand new day and a brand new book. Today we are getting into Malachi. And for those of you who are wondering, I have six messages planned for Malachi. So we will not be in Malachi next year, um, barring anything unforeseen. Um, I love the book of Malachi. I have had the privilege of teaching through like a one-hour Bible study on Malachi um, a couple years ago, and I really, really enjoyed it, but I always thought Malachi would be a great book to, um, to look at in, in, um, in greater detail. So I think six is the kind of the magic number, and you'll see why when we talk about it, um, why I chose that number. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the lesson for today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that your word always brings light, always offers light in a dark world, always offers light to people who are uh, still affected by the ignorance uh, that sin causes. Uh, God, thank you that your word uh, gives that light to us and removes our ignorance, just a little at a time maybe, but that you do remove our ignorance and, and replace it with true knowledge of yourself. Father, thank you that you have called us your children through Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you will help me to one, stay on task, um, because there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of background information, there's a lot of historical information, there's a lot that I've looked through this week, and we have 30 minutes or so. Um, I want to honor you, and I want to make the, the points clear as possible, and I would love for all of us to go away with more understanding and a greater appreciation for who you are. So God, will you illuminate us? Will you teach us your word? Will you show us your paths, Lord? Will you teach us your truth? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, book of Malachi, we're going to start, uh, my, my plan for today is to spend about 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes in the introduction, uh, which will kind of bring us to where we are in Malachi, and then uh, talk about the first dispute, and again, I'll fill you in on that in a second. So, this is sort of my outline for today. Uh, we're going to look through these things, and, and then that, I, th- I, help, I think, will help us to better understand each little section that we go through in Malachi. So, first, as far as the authorship of Malachi, there's two possibilities, really. Um, Malachi is either a title or it's a name, right? The word means my messenger. Uh, And so, of course, the the understanding is that this is a messenger of God. And then, therefore, the words that he brings are a message from God we should pay attention, right? Um, To me, it matters very little whether Malachi was a title Uh, or a pen name of sorts, or whether that was his actual name. It matters very little because the meaning is still the same. We understand he's a prophet, okay? Um, If you'd like to know more about that, we can talk, and I can tell you what I discovered, but I I don't think it's all that critical. Um, But the biblical historical setting is pretty important. Uh, One of the things that I think that would really help you to understand Malachi better, it certainly helped me over these last few weeks, Uh, is to read through carefully uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is historically one book, uh, and we have Ezra and Nehemiah are basically split up into three periods. Uh, The first six chapters or so of Ezra are uh, talking about the time of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was part of the initial return uh, from the Babylonian captivity to Israel. Uh, And that happened around 538 B.C., somewhere around that time period. 
Um, and so, and, and what, what those first six chapters focus on are the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and, and the importance of that. And then you can look to Haggai, and Haggai is a prophet who was speaking at the time in the second year of Darius is where, he's, where he begins his book. And he's telling the people, you need to quit messing around with your own houses and build the Lord's house, right? Um, so again, Haggai and Zechariah can, can both, who were prophets of the, around the same time period, this time period, um, can give you a little bit more information as well, all right? So we have the historical books of Ezra, uh, and, um, and Nehemiah. And then, of course, the second half of Ezra is Ezra's return, which was, I don't know, 70-something, maybe 60 or 70 years after Zerubbabel. And then Nehemiah, who comes on the scene about 13 years, so he is a contemporary of, of Ezra, and, and he's also one of the leaders of the people. And so, so Zerubbabel's ministry really, uh, or time period of leadership, really focuses on the rebuilding of the temple, uh, Ezra focuses on the reestablishment of the law with the people, things being brought back into uh, conformity with the law. And then Nehemiah, who does address, address the law, he's tasked with the physical uh, task of rebuilding the city walls. Okay, So that gives you a little bit of understanding about that. I have some dates up here for us just to keep things in mind. Uh, we know that um, the return was around 538, 539 B.C., um, and again, that's going to be a couple of years off, depending on modern dating. Um, and then uh, the temple was rebuilt, completed in around 515 BC. So that's when they would have uh, they would have reinstated the sacrifices earlier with the building of the altar. But that's when everything was well, everything was completed on that on that uh, second temple. Uh, and then, of course, we have Ezra going to Jerusalem in 458. Around 445, Nehemiah arrives. All right. Now, most uh, Bible scholars place uh, the book of Malachi after all of this. Some have contended that maybe that, that he was writing before, and he was a contemporary of um, Haggai and Zechariah. And there's really no way to tell. The only thing that we can really say with certainty uh, is based on the topics that we find in the book of Malachi, and based on a word, one particular word helps us, um, the word governor that's used here, is a, is a word that's borrowed from Persian, and so it comes into the language from Persian, and, and it refers to, it would have to be, um, sorry, it would have to fall in this time period from 539 to 333 B.C. We know that with relative certainty. Most um, Bible scholars would date uh, Malachi to around 400s B.C. Okay, so a little bit of time after Nehemiah passes off the scene. The... Uh, the literary construction is actually kind of important here. Um, so I'm going to take just a few minutes to explain that. Uh, the, the literary construction is divided up into six disputes, we could call them, uh, between God and the people. And I have the divisions up there for you. Um, now, in each of these disputes, they all follow the same sort of model. Either the Lord or the prophet speaks a truth. He makes a truth claim. He asserts some sort of truth. Often it's talking about sin, but it's not always. Um, so he makes a truth claim. And then the phrase, but you say, will appear, followed by some sort of defiant question, a challenging question against what God has just said or the prophet revealed from God. And then the reply from the Lord or the prophet will elaborate on that truth and expound upon the guilt of the people. 
That's gonna, it's that, that pattern's gonna be established. So that's why I chose to divide this up into six messages and to divide it up around these six disputes. Um, it's also a chiastic structure. Sorry for the confusion there with my slides. It, it looked different <laughs> on my home computer. Anyway, um, it's also a chiastic structure. We talked about this in Deuteronomy, where sort of things at the beginning and end mirror each other, and then the things just inside of those, and then the things just inside of those mirror each other. So there's a similarity of theme uh, in the A's, the first and the last, and then there's a similarity of theme in B, which is the second to last. There's even a double repetition of the but you say found in the second and the fifth disputes. Really interesting, but you can see a clear structure in this. And then the Lord is the one credited as speaking in both the first two and the last two, or it's the prophet who speaks uh, according to the middle two. Now, this doesn't take away the truth of the claims. It's just an interesting way that the author has set this up. So we can see the intentional structure of the letter. Uh, I think it's really important that we see the intentional structure of the letter because it lets us know that these authors are not just rattling off things from their head, things that pop out of nowhere. They're making clear and intentional, intentional and careful claims based on the Word of God, fueled by the Spirit of God and watched over by the Spirit of God for the benefit of the people. And so when we see structure like this, it's at least important uh, in the sense that it shows us the intentionality of the authors, the human authors, in these words. Now, I, I highlighted four purposes from this. There's more but I think these are things that are really important. One is to remind or reveal who the Lord is. Um, we, we went through A.W. Tozer's attributes of God for a reason. It's really important that we remember who God is. Uh, secondly, to warn Israel regarding their guilt. God over and over and over again in the scripture warns people of their guilt. And every time you hear a warning about your guilt, it is an opportunity for repentance. Never forget that, right? No matter how heavy a book or a passage seems, God is offering an opportunity for repentance. Uh, number three, to explain the heart of unfaithfulness. The, the, the heart of the problem, right? Because sometimes we understand the symptoms, but we don't really understand the heart of the problem. We don't understand the core issue. But he does this here. Um, also, to point to God's future promises and hope, specifically in the Messiah. I think all these, th all these four reasons are very important. I think they're the most important purposes of this particular book. Finally, the central issue. Um, the central issue can be found in the second uh, of the disputes, and so I'm not going to go into it in great detail here, but God is great, and his name will be great over all the earth and among all the nations. Or in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will happen. And the question is, brought up in chapter 2, are you taking him seriously? Have you taken this matter to heart? Have you resolved in your heart that you will honor his name? That's the core of the issue going on here and the core of the question, the challenge to the people of Israel. So with that, pretty happy, stuck within the 15 minutes of the introduction. We're going to get into the first section. Um, so I'm going to make a few comments along the way. I'd like you to read in your Bible with me. Um, so he starts out like this, a prophecy, um, and the word here is also, could also be translated burden. You get the idea, he has a, w a great weight on his heart, a great weight for his people, a uh, similar weight that a lot of people have shared uh, for various peoples 
over thousands of years as they understood who God was and they see disobedience, they see a lack of um, respect for who God is and a lack of honoring him in their lives. And so they had this great burden for other people that they would know the truth and they would respond positively to it, right? So we have this, this burden from the prophet. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, through his messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Now, I put a correction here. I put say here uh, because a couple of reasons, but I think it's important that, that there, there, are very, uh, there are some times in, in the Bible when it's really critical that we understand what was said. And I think um, ESV, NASB, a couple of the other literal translations give us say. And they do it for a reason because they want to set up, uh, the author wants to set up this, this kind of um, tension, this, uh, this contrast between what God says and the people say. So he says it on the one hand, he says, look, the Lord says, the Lord declares, the one who spoke everything into existence has a message for you. He says, I have loved you. And on the other side, he says, you people, you say, how have you loved us? You see how that contrasts here? They're not asking an honest question and saying, oh, how have you loved us? We'd like to know. We'd like to understand. No. They're challenging. They're defying the word of God and saying, how? I don't see it. We should never, ever read these disputes as honest, as open, as sincere. They are challenging the word of God. So now, in the, what you could call a vindication portion, the Lord elaborates on his love and what it looks like. I'm not going to go into great detail here. I know we all know these stories. I just want to, we'll look at that in a minute. But he says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Remember Jacob, who was later named Israel? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. It's interesting, in, in Jeremiah 9, chapter 11, when, when God is revealing to the people uh, of Israel and Judah that he is going to uh, turn Israel into a wasteland, and he uses the same phrase, a wasteland and a desert of jackals, or a desert, uh, to the desert jackals, inheritance for the desert jackals. He uses that same phrase. And now he uses it about Esau's land. Uh, the word hate might bother us here, might bother you a little bit. Um, that's okay. The word should arrest our attention a little bit. As I told you, the, the first and the last dispute give us an understanding about how God discriminates between the righteous and the wicked. How God discriminates between two groups of people. How God makes a distinction between his people and the wicked people of the world. And right here, God makes a distinction. And he says, I made a distinction. I showed you my love when I made a distinction between Jacob and Esau. They were both descendants of Abraham. They were both sons of Isaac. But I chose one and not the other. I chose you. I chose to set my affection on you. I haven't said that of Esau. I've said the opposite. I said, Esau, I hated. You could look at the history, the history here, how Esau despised his birthright. 
And I, and I think if you, if you give an honest reading to Genesis, you'll understand that Esau wasn't just despising getting a double portion. He was despising the promises of God from Genesis chapter 12. And that is why God hated Esau. But, but, but God hated Esau in this... In this it's, a, it's, a, I'm sorry, it's a choice. God chose to set his affection on the people of Israel, on the descendants of Jacob. He made a choice. And through the long history of, of Israel's rejection of God's word, he consistently was faithful to his promises to Israel. First to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then through Jacob, who became Israel, and then all to his descendants. Because of the faithfulness of God, not because of the deserving of Jacob or the lack of deserving of Esau, because neither one deserved it. God makes the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and it's his choice. That's why Paul borrows this phrase in Romans chapter 9, to let us know that it's not because of any individual righteousness or individual goodness or badness or anything you've ever done or ever will do. It is the sovereign choice and will of God. It is his elective choice. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. Uh, I think the original is the Lord of hosts, if, you're, if you like tracking that sort of thing. Uh, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, now, it's always important to me to understand the historical things connected with these prophecies. And ask the question, did they happen? How did they happen? When did they happen? You know, and how certain are we that they did happen? Um, not that I'm questioning or I would encourage people questioning, did God's word come true? I would like you to understand how it came true, right? So, um, with Edom, uh, what we have after the Babylonian captivity and why it's extremely significant to the people here today, uh, I, I say here today, the people who are hearing this for the first time, right, in the time of the messenger Malachi. Uh, why is it significant to them? Well, because they are living in a time, and you can see from the rest of the letter, and also Ezra and Nehemiah, they're living in a time when the temple is really small, when they have tons of enemies all around, and, uh, and, and Edom is still successful. Edom, actually, at this point, has spread all the way up to the southern border of Judah, in the Bible, when you look on a map and you'll see in the, in the maps from the time of Jesus, Idumea, well, those, that's the, the, the northern edge of the spread of the Edomites. They spread really far out. Now, historical reasons for how they got conquered are a little bit different, right? Um, but the why is very clear in the Bible. Uh, the why is because the Edomites showed hatred toward Israel. They despised Israel when Israel was being punished by God, they despised Israel when, when they were coming out of captivity to go into the land initially. And then they also despised Israel after the Babylonians sacked Israel. And they come in and they kind of like claim territory and they start uh, and they mistreat the captives uh, or the people who, are, who, are, who have escaped, rather. Um, so, so Edom showed nothing but hatred toward the people of Israel. And, and, and that's why God says he's going to destroy them. But here, he says, you're going to see it. Now, but at this point, 
likely, because of the way he's talking here, Edom hasn't yet been destroyed. We know historically that a group of uh, Arabs uh, called Nabataeans are, are historically responsible. It's really hard to get all the details because apparently the Nabataeans didn't keep good records, but other people commented on them. So that's why there's the, the history there is kind of weak as far as knowing um, exactly when and how it happened. Most historical sources put it between 550 B.C. and 400 B.C. So we know reasonably certain that this happened around that time period. But we're absolutely certain that it happened. You know why? Because there's no nation called Edom today. And there's no people that can trace their history back to the Edomites today. There are probably people who are genetic, genetically, ethnically, you know, in some mixed way, come from Edom. It is, it's, it's unlikely historically that everybody who ever came from Edom died off without procreating. But they're not a people today. He says, they'll be called the wicked land. Think of this. Do people walk around probably calling it the wicked land? I'm sure they did it for a time period. But here, what's critical is, in contrast to that, what do we call Israel? What does everybody call Israel? The holy land. In Arabic, that's its name. Al-Quds, the holy place. The holy land. Everybody calls it the Holy Land. So he's making a distinction. He's making a contrast between Israel and Edom. And he's showing that this is the evidence of his love. So I pointed out these these few things. This is is my breakdown of what's going on according to the pattern that I set forth. Right? We have have the truth claim. We have the dispute or or the, um, the objection or whatever you want to call it. And then we have the vindication where the Lord elaborates on the truth claim that he's just made. The Lord says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? And this is another reason why it's, you know, I would just, I would always caution us not to be too quick to vilify and sort of, um, I don't know, hold up in verbal effigy and beat up, you know, like, you know, the effigy is like where they hang, a, hang, some, hang something up that's in the likeness of a person and attack it. Well, you know, I don't want to do that to Israel. Look at Ezra and look at Nehemiah, and you'll see how the people had some questions. They had earthly reasons to question the claims of God. Earthly reasons, don't mistake me. The temple was much smaller than the temple of Solomon. It was less grand, it was less valuable, there were less costly stones involved. The city wall, you can look in through the history of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city wall was down. Nehemiah sees the wall constructed but they faced all kinds of opposition. They had to rebuild it. Their builders had to work with a sword in one hand and and a tool in the other. Often had to sleep on the construction site to keep people from doing damage. And they're under the constant mockery of the people around them. You can see from the the content of Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah and and Haggai that the people were living in in bad uh, agricultural conditions. They faced famine and drought and all sorts of things. Yes, it was because of their disobedience. But imagine the minds of the people who thought, God has promised this great return. Look at our temple. Look at our walls. Look at the rubble that's around. Look at the famine. Look at the drought. How have you loved us? I'm not saying their claims or their question is legitimate. And their attitude is wrong. 
but you can understand in an earthly way why they would question, why they would accuse even. The people doubted the faithfulness of the Lord to his covenant promises. They thought little of his covenant love in light of their physical circumstances. Thinking little of is another word, it's a definition of despise or to have contempt for. But these three parts of the vindication are essential. Firstly, that the Lord chose Jacob to receive his covenants. Um, you know, Paul says in a couple places in Romans, I'm going to read, just read them for you really quickly. In chapter 3, he says, so what is advantage, what advantage then is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. If nothing else, if no other thing had been given to the Jews, think of this, out of all the peoples on the earth at the time, out of all who were wicked, because we know from Deuteronomy and we know from other places in Scripture that God did not choose Israel because they were better than other people. And yet, God gave his words to a people, to one people. He gave his words, he spoke to one group of sinners out of the rest. Not only that, but he chose to bring the Messiah forth from them. He chose to give them his covenant love. In chapter 9, Paul says, when he's talking about the anguish and the sorrow that he has for the Jews, he says, I could wish... Uh, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And this is how he describes him. He says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Remember Israel, my firstborn son, they were the first people that he called, that God called his son? He said, he said theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You understand that the Jews received these beautiful, these distinguishing, these awesome covenants of God over and over and over again. Secondly, the Lord rejected the Edomites in regard to his covenants. He did not give those people. Sometimes we look at things and we just think, oh, well, that's just the opposite of what you just said. Okay, it is. But it's an exclusive giving. The Lord gave these promises to Israel and he gave them to them exclusively. There was a distinguishing point and he says, you are the descendants of Jacob, you are the descendants of Israel, you are mine. He made promises to Israel that he didn't make to other people. And the only way other people could, be, could receive those promises is if they actually joined with Israel. Now, God made provision for that, but they could not remain who they were and receive any of the promises of God. Thirdly, the Lord rebuilt Israel, but not Edom. And I said this before. The Edomites are not a people. Idumeans are not a people. There is no land today of Edom. And yet, as of 1948, there is a land of Israel, and there's a people who've remained distinct for 2,000 years. No other people has survived like this, separated from a homeland, 
retaining their language, retaining culture, retaining their religion. No other people have survived like this. I wanted to remind us of this because I said before in the beginning that part of the purpose here is to reveal who God is. And I think Deuteronomy 7, 9 really reveals this very well. And it should, have, it should ring true in the heart of every Jewish person uh, who has read it. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. It's the heart of the message of Malachi, right? God is faithful. His love is faithful to his people, the ones who have received his promises. Who what? Who keep his commandments. Now in the second section, he's going to get to more of why they keep his commandments. Maybe that's a central issue as well. Now for us, right? Because we still have to, I said at the beginning, Malachi is a prophet to Israel, but he's also a prophet to us. Because God's word is still true. It just doesn't mean that the exact same things that Malachi is talking about, um, specifically prophecies, right? Um, I've never known the Edomites to be a people, so I don't know that I could look at what he said in Malachi with the same eyes that a Jewish person would have had at that time, who says, well, Edomites are right on our our borders. They're part of the people tearing us up. They're part of the people persecuting us. They laughed at our ancestors when they were carted off to captivity. They pillaged them. They killed the captives or the people who had gotten free that did get taken into captivity. They're horrible people. When are they going to get theirs? But he says, you will see it. And you'll say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. The idea is, God, the Lord, is not a local God. He's not confined to one area, and he's not confined to one like, uh, area of operation like the later Roman gods and Greek gods in their thinking they were, you know, they had uh, significance over an area geographically or over some sort of uh, avenue of life, like war or, or, or crops or what have you. But no, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. But how do we understand it, right? How do we put this into practice? Well, I think it's pretty easy. Um, I already pointed to the Messianic promise, and we'll get there in uh, the fourth or fifth, I'm forgetting the disputes number content now, but we'll get to it a little bit. Uh, but right now, God has proclaimed his covenant love for humanity in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. You know, Paul said in, in, in Acts chapter 17 that the whole world was going to be judged in accordance with him. Peter said, there's no other name given among men by where, whereby men must be saved. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except by me. God has proclaimed his covenant love through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Two places in the Bible that absolutely spell it out what the love of God is. Romans 5 and 1 John, I think, 4 tell us that the love of God is wrapped up in Jesus' death for sinners, his atoning sacrifice that he provided for sinners. God has proclaimed his love. That is a distinguishing, the, the receipt of that promise is a distinguish, uh, distinguishing 
uh, point between the righteous and the wicked, right? Because all those, all of us are wicked, but those who come in faith and repentance will be righteous in Christ. And the world rejects this, and they, they show themselves to be wicked because they've rejected uh, the name of the Son of God. But sometimes even believers, sometimes even people within the faith community, within the covenant community of God, they, they despise the love of God and they base that on their earthly situation. They say, yeah, 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 Jesus died for my sins, great, but what has he done for me lately? Now, I don't think that the people necessarily yelled this at Malachi. I think more likely is that God is speaking to the condition of their hearts, and he's telling them what they're thinking and how they're behaving on the inside and how their actions on the outside show their inner heart. Sometimes Christians look at their earthly circumstances and they despise the death of Christ, show little esteem for, because of their earthly circumstances. It could be financial, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be relational with other people around you, it could be economic, it could be all sorts of things. But when we start looking at our earthly situation, we're doing exactly like the world does, and we're judging everything by our feelings. Judging everything by our truth. Rather than accepting God's truth as the core defining truth. Thirdly, the, the whole new covenant is our vindication. Now, I, I could pick a lot of places, but I think one of the most round places to look at, one of the most balanced places to look at is Ephesians chapter 1. So that's where I'm going to close up today. But I want to challenge you to listen to each of these disputes. And the principle behind the disobedience of the people may be reflected in our own lives. We may find ourselves, as we look at these disputes, examining our own lives, and I hope we do, looking for remnants of rebellion within our own heart. Sanctification happens you know, in, in two broad ways, right? Um, and, and I'm talking about from our perspective. I'm not talking about the work of God. We all know that it's the work of God that makes sanctification ultimately happen. But our actions are usually in two categories. Either we see good that the Bible commands that we're not doing, or we see evil that the Bible forbids that we are doing. And so as we examine those things here in the book of Malachi, challenge yourself. I'm challenging myself, and I, I would urge you, and I'm praying for you to do the same. This is part of our sanctification process. This is part that we have some say-so in, that we have some responsibility in as well. But the whole new, new covenant is our vindication, or is vindication uh, for God in his claim here, I have loved you. This is what he has done for believers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All these blessings are evidence of his love. For he chose us in him. His choice of us is evidence of his love. Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. What we have looked forward to, being holy even though now we're wicked, that's evidence of his love. In love, he predestined us. He loved us, so he predestined us. 
for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. It gives God good pleasure and will to bring about your completion and your holiness in Jesus Christ, even though He chose you from before the foundations of the world. You understand what great love it is? And then He calls us His children. And as John says in 1 John, what a wonderful thing that He would call us. What a marvelous truth that He would call us His children. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Church, all of that is evidence of the proclamation of the love of God. But it is not a frivolous love. It is not a love that will kind of ebb and flow. It is a love that's covenantal. And when he makes that covenantal choice to love someone, he makes it happen. And we'll see that in the book of Malachi. We'll see it over and over and over again. And I'm going to try to remind you over and over, and I'm going to try to remind myself over and over again that God has announced his covenant love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's give him thanks and praise. And when we sing in a few minutes, let's remember this is our heart response, or this is a time when it should be our heart response to the awesome truth of God's word for those who believe. Worship him. Worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great book of Malachi. Lord, um, thank you for helping us to understand uh, what it means that you have loved. That when you love someone, it is a choice on your part. And you always carry that out. No, no amount of failing on our part. Love for us. Because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. Because of marking us out choosing us from all eternity, bringing these things about at just the right time, giving us your Holy Spirit, enabling us, empowering us, and adopting us, forgiving us, redeeming us. God, thank you for all the wonderful promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to remember that and to live lives that reflect that truth, that agree with this truth claim when you say, Help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.